to another episode of Shipping Shakespeare, where we talk about Shakespeare plays and the wonderful ships within them. We are currently discussing Twelfth Night, Shakespeare's most awesome and also gayest comedy. I am Liz. And I'm Julia. Last time, we talked about canon ships, the key ideas in the play, and our favorite OTPs. This week, we're going to do something a little angrier. First, Julia is going to summarize the play for anyone who isn't familiar with it. And then we'll get started. Okay, just a little refresher from last time. Twelfth Night is the story of Viola, an awesome, badass lady uh, who gets shipwrecked on the coast of Illyria and separated from her twin brother, Sebastian. She seeks refuge in the court of Count Orsino, the soppiest, emoist dude in all of Shakespeare. To accomplish this, Viola disguises herself as a boy, calls herself Cesario, and works her way into Orsino's inner circle, and eventually falls in love with him as you do. Orsino, meanwhile, is in love with the Countess Olivia, although really he kind of pathetically idealizes her. Viola ends up serving as the intermediary between the two. In the course of all this, Olivia, who's been previously been withdrawn and aloof, falls in love with Viola, because she's that awesome and hot. While all of that nonsense is going on, Sir Toby, Olivia's drunk uncle, who parties all day and night, decides to play a prank on Malvolio Olivia Stewart, because he's really uptight. With the help of Maria, Olivia's lady-in-waiting, who loves Toby, and Feste, Olivia's fool, Toby convinces Malfolio that Olivia is secretly in love with him. Hijinks ensue, as they pretty much always do with Shakespeare's side characters. Meanwhile, Viola's brother, Sebastian, who did not die, turns up with Antonio, the probably a pirate captain, even though he insists that he's not, who saves Sebastian from drowning and is, to say the least, a little obsessed with him. Uh, mistaken for Cesario, Sebastian is accosted by Sir Toby and his friend Sir Andrew, and ultimately also Olivia, who marries Sebastian in secret. The twins are finally reunited the next day when Orsino comes to confront Olivia and also deal with Antonio, who's been captured. Viola reveals her true identity. Orsino declares his love for her, and everything is hunky-dory. Except for Malvolio, who swears revenge on everyone. The play is very concerned with ideas of gender, and particularly with subverting them, as seen in the aggressive courtships of Olivia for Viola and eventually Sebastian, and Viola herself for Orsino. We also talk a lot about disguise and deception. Another important theme is the importance of friendship in romantic relationships, and how without it, the romance is weak and thin. And pointless. And pointless. The play also deals with subverting the traditional values of both that time and this, because gender is timeless. And it has a lot to do with powerful women taking control of a bad situation from the weak sauce men around them. And I'm just going to note that everything works better when the women do take charge. I mean, it's just true. It's society. And it's Shakespeare. It's, like, perfect. He knew it. We know it. I hope you know it, too dear audience. If not, I feel like you're not going to have very much fun listening to this. If you're interested in learning anything more about this, we're going to drop some links in the description and the details. But for now, let's move on to our problematic faves. Ooh. <laughs> for a play f so full of joyous glee producing ships, there are a couple doozies in this one. There are a few uncomfortable situations and pat sort of conclusions that aren't necessarily earned, but it's a romantic comedy. It's not new that that's often a problem. No, and especially not in Shakespeare, where it's rare to find a truly satisfying end for a comedy. This is true. And Twelfth Night comes extremely close, if not succeeds at doing that, 
there are just a couple things that maybe bother us a little bit. They might not bother you. They don't have to bother you. That's fine. We're just talking and, and maybe ranting a little bit about some of them. It's true. Twelfth Night, I think, is the most successful in its ending and convincing you of its ending. But it is saying something that even here we have stuff to talk about. For sure. Do you want to start again with Olivia and Orsino? Sure. So the obvious problematic fave that, again, nobody but Orsino ships is Olivia Orsino, or as Julia calls it, O squared. Yes. It's lazy, but their names do not blend well. There are no good portmanteaus. No. If you have one, though, please let us know. Hashtag it. There are many problems with O squared. The key one, as far as I see it at least, is that they don't know each other really at all. At all. I, I think we mentioned last time the moment when they encounter each other in Act 5, Scene 1, which, what, is the only scene in Act 5, right? is the only scene in Act 5 and the last scene in the play. One long scene with people, more and more people coming on stage. It's super fun. <laughs> That's the first time they've seen each other in at least a year, if not more, because if maybe you don't remember, Olivia has been in mourning for her brother for a very long time, longer than is considered, I guess, healthy by standards of the day. Or at least by Orsino. <laughs> well, you know, the people in her household give her a hard time about it too, uh, notably Feste's like, well, why are you mourning so much for your brother if you think he's in heaven? Clearly he's in hell since you're so sad. This is true. No, you're right. <laughs> Anyway, so it's been a very long time. Orsino has not spoken to her. He sent messengers. But the bigger problem is that he has this very idealized, unrealistic view of what a romantic relationship between a man and a woman should be. That he's he's very caught up with these rigidly gendered Petrarchan stereotypes in which he is the active wooer and she is the passive receiver. And you spend five minutes with Olivia and you know she ain't nobody's passive receiver. No, 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 no. This is not the way that you successfully woo this woman. Maybe it works for other dopes, but not her. And Orsino completely fails to realize this, even when Viola has to scream it in his face. He botches it in just about every way that you can. And I think it's important to remember, too, about Olivia. She's pretty much alone in the world, I think, at this point. I think they mentioned that her father died and kind of left custody of her to her brother, who then also died. So there's really, you know, it's just her. She's been looking after herself and her household, and it seems like she's been doing just fine, except for the terrible decision-making and whoever hired Malvolio, but I don't know if we can necessarily lay that on her. And the fact that her uncle is mooching and has been indefinitely. Yeah, there are worse things, right? Yeah, until he starts throwing his drunken raves. I, I get that it's annoying, but it kind of speaks to her tolerance, maybe. That's true. And he does stop when she tells him. Absolutely. I'm just saying, there are clearly bigger problems that you could have, and she's managing, and Orsino doesn't treat her as someone who has her shit together. She's just this delicate flower of a woman, and he's gonna take care of her and make her a full person, and their love is going to be just so poetical. It's not even that good. It's that she, by the fact of her existence with him, is going to make him a full person. That's also true. I guess he doesn't really care about her personhood. He doesn't really have any conception of the woman in a man-woman relationship as anything active. This is true. He doesn't even think that women love the way that men do. I mean, that's something yeah. that Viola has to correct in him. So it's really, it's no surprise at all that Olivia, in the face of all this bullshit, is like, hell no. I've got my own stuff going on. And props to her for successfully sinking this ship by way of a secret marriage. True. She just put the nail in that coffin. <laughs> 
herself. The interesting thing about this ship is partly that it doesn't work because they're really similar in a lot of ways. That's what I was going to say. I mean, we've we've kind of noted their class similarities, which would have been fine in the day, right? If not preferable. But everything else about them is they're too dramatic, too melancholic, too in their heads about a lot of things. And too used to command. Yeah, they're both they're both a little bit spoiled. I think we said neither of them is accustomed to hearing the word no. Yeah, neither one is remotely equipped to take a no with any grace. No, they're just shocked. Like, it doesn't happen enough. So it's not even like that they're surrounded by sycophants, but they are surrounded by people who are not willing to stand up to them. Except for Feste, but that can be excused because he's a fool and he's allowed. Absolutely. Yeah, there's a social out on that one. And Shakespeare uses that to great effect in plenty of plays, that the fool can say things that other people can't or won't. And not receive the punishment that other characters would for saying them. But it's interesting that obviously Orsino doesn't have a fool, and instead Cesario steps into the role of truth teller, but without the veil of comedy, Viola as Cesario gets to be really direct. That's partly because of them being the same gender, but I think it's also because Orsino's really to Cesario slash Viola. Yeah. No, he's inclined to listen. Yeah. I think other people probably wouldn't get away with that quite so much. I think it's telling also that in talking about this particular ship, we keep bringing in Viola, which is just one more indication of why this ship does not work. Can you imagine if they actually got together? What what would oh that even God. look like? I just imagine Curio and Maria slowly getting drunk on Canary in the kitchen, <laughs> just staring blearily at each other and saying, what the fuck are our lives even? Can can this please just not happen? <laughs> yeah. Make them go away. They're complaining so much and all they're doing is quoting philosophy and poetry at each other. It doesn't accomplish anything. Uh, and that's that's really the key to why this ship doesn't work. If Olivia Orsino was endgame, we would have more of the same. We would have stasis. And while the social goal of a Shakespearean comedy is to bring the status quo back, it has to get shaken up first. That's true. I think static's a really good word for both of them, considering, too, how little physical movement happens before Viola arrives. Like, all the back and forth is happening on her part. Yes. They're just in their respective courts, just drinking wine and crying in Orsino's case, and, and Olivia's just not dealing with anyone. And she, Viola's just burning all them calories running back and forth. Yeah, like, oh, I have to do that again? I hope they don't live that far apart for her sake. I'm sure she manages. Gotta get a sweet ass somehow. I think it was sweet before... Probably. Anyway, so I, I think that's a pretty good rundown of why O-Square doesn't work. It, there's, they're too similar. They're both pretty entitled. They're extremely static. And the people that they fall for are the agents of change in the play. Or really the person that they fall for is the agent of change in the play. It's Viola's play. Yes. I don't care that we start with Racino. He's like the prologue in a fantasy novel. He's there to set it up and then the real characters come in. Well, that makes sense. I don't like fantasy prologues either. <laughs> They're lazy. Like Orsino. <laughs> like Orsino. Bless. All right. Who do we have up next to dismantle? Again, they are one of my OTPs, but Vi Orsino is kind of problematic. I mean, kind of for a lot of the reasons that we've discussed with Orsino and Olivia, right? That they're just problems with Orsino. Yeah. The reason that I ship him with Viola, and partly the reason that they end up together at the end of the play, is that she is the only person who manages to shake him out of his preconceived notions. But it's work 
for her. She has to wade through a lot of misogynistic bullshit. And on top of all of that is, I really do wonder if at the end of the play, Olivia was like, all right, fine. Let's do Mm. this thing. What would happen? Huh. Well, that would just change the whole picture of the ending, wouldn't it? It's unlikely because it's a comedy and it's pretty clear from Shakespeare's perspective who's supposed to end up with whom. Yes. But at the same time, I feel like Ursino is still at least somewhat invested in this kind of predetermined social order. And honestly, what he gets from Viola isn't that different to me than what he thought he wanted from Olivia. I mean, it's his personhood that gets developed through Viola. It's true. I mean, it, it happens in a much more interesting and appealing and compelling way than what he's describing at the beginning of the play, that what he wants out of Olivia. But she's she's still the one doing all the work, as we've established. Yeah. It's kind of lame. I mean, again, I am I'm happy with it because she is happy with it. But yeah, no, he he needs to step up his game because otherwise she's just going to hang out a lot at Olivia's house. Having lots of multiple orgasms. Yeah, girls know what's up. They do. They really do. So yeah, I mean, I think the sum total of my issue with Viracino is he's just not good enough for her, okay? (laughs) He's not. I ship them, but he's not. He's got some stuff to work out. Not that Olivia's perfect, but really. Well, Olivia is more interesting than Orsino, both as a character on her own and as a ship with Viola. I guess that's true. I mean, a lot of her choices do go against what's expected of her and required of her in some ways, and nothing that Orsino does really steps out of line, except for the fact that he has secretly fallen in love with a boy, he thinks. Yes. Now, I feel like if we had a little bit more meditation on that, because I feel like a lot of that ends up being not explicitly stated. Yeah, I think the closest it gets is in that one scene of Act 5 when Olivia refuses him to his face and he realizes she's got the hots for Cesario. He's really angry, because again, can't take no. And wounded on multiple levels. I think that's true. Yes. Then out of nowhere, we haven't had the reveal of the secret marriage yet. He just picks up on something, figures out that she's into Cesario, and says, This your minion, whom I know you love, and whom by heaven I swear I tender dearly, him will I tear out of that cruel eye where he sits crowned in his master's spite. I'll sacrifice the lamb that I do love to spite a raven's heart within a dove. It's the most uncomfortable moment of the play for me, because he's simultaneously acknowledging that his feelings for Viola are considerably deeper than he ever expected them to be, but also is perfectly content to do untold awful things to her just to piss Olivia off and make himself feel better. Right, and I don't think he knows, to be fair. It's not completely clear where the jealousy is really directed at that point. He's expressing it more towards Cesario slash Viola, but, I mean, clearly he's also jealous of Olivia in that moment. I would agree, and that expressing it the way he does is, again, the socially acceptable way for him to vent these feelings that he doesn't feel comfortable having. Right, but the fact that he never really articulates that or any doubts that he might have been having or really any of anything of the kind. I mean, he gets to hide behind the facade of what his relationship with Cesario is supposed to be as the intermediary between him and the woman he's wooing. He gets to do that for the entire play and really never leaves the comfort zone of that, that I can see. Yeah, no, pretty much. This is another reason why I love the Trevor Nunn movie, where they almost kiss in the barn and then just have to deal with that. He's so good. And it's funny because that trope shows up in every cross-dressing movie I think I've ever seen. It's not a Shakespeare cross-dressing production if you don't have them almost kiss while she's in drag. Part of the reason that I love that directorial choice is that it brings 
Orsino's own inner conflict starkly into the realm of the physical, which it's certainly possible to do a production of Twelfth Night without ever going there, but that, I would argue, is not being true to the spirit of the play or to the relationship between the two of them. I would definitely agree with that, yeah. And that because Orsino doesn't wrestle with this in the text, he absolutely has to in performance in his own physicality, because that's the only way that the actor is going to be able to communicate to the audience this inner turmoil, because it's not written. No, I agree. And actually, I should, you know, slight caveat to anything that we say about problematic faves or ships that we don't like. I mean, first of all, like whatever you want. That's absolutely cool. We're not criticizing people who are into whatever they're into. No judgment zone. Yeah, no king shaming, none of that. I might have some questions, but you can ignore them. Anyway, but the other thing is I wanted to say, I think a good performance of any of these people can can change the way that you feel about those characters. I mean, I think that's absolutely true for us, you know? It might even be true for Malvolio, although I feel like that's going too far. But you're absolutely right. I'm thinking particularly of that production of Cymbeline that we saw low these many moons ago, where the actor playing Posthumus just dug down and got to some emotional truths that you don't feel when you're reading the play. Right. I mean, and that's, I would say, the beautiful thing about theater in general, right, is it gets to change every time. Each person in that role gets to bring something new to it. And the the text, while it might seem fixed on the surface of it, is really a lot more fluid and flexible than I think any of us really understand while we're just reading it. Absolutely. 100% agreed. And that the successful Orsinos that I've seen are the ones who aren't afraid to deal with that attraction physically. Absolutely. So I think maybe there are some things that Shakespeare probably couldn't do in Twelfth Night that you can do now on the stage that's more compelling and interesting. Because lest we forget, putting the textual gayness of this play aside, all of Shakespeare's romantic relationships as originally performed were hella gay. Yeah, older men and younger men. <laughs> yep, lots of kissing, lots, lots of, of cuddling, all dudes. All Just dudes. deal with it. Juliet's a boy. Juliet is a boy. Cleopatra's a boy. They're all boys, all of them. While it is extremely awesome to see those parts played by talented, brilliant women, also still have to remember, the audience took that sense of disbelief and that was fine, but they were they were two men. Which is part of... The, um, the thrill for Elizabethan audiences of watching these plays performed. In context, yes, of course it's a girl dressed as a boy, but what you're watching on stage, every second you're watching a romantic relationship develop between characters, is two men into each other. Or in this case, a boy dressed as a girl dressed as a boy, which I love. Yes, so much. It's my favorite part of the cross-dressing. So much oh, meta. So meta. I guess we should move on. I would throw a note out there. In the context of its original writing and performance, Cap Twin, a.k.a. Sebastian and Antonio, which is Yay. one of my OTPs, was deeply problematic and could only be conveyed through subtext. Laid on with a trowel, but subtext. It would have been shocking, and there, there's definitely a reason why it gets undone at the end. I think that's important. It is partly for the sake of Olivia and Viola's relationship being resolved too, but we see this even now with media, right? When like things are getting a little bit too gay on your favorite TV show, somebody's going to get a love interest. Fast. Or someone's going to die, unfortunately. I guess I prefer the former to the latter, but it Always. still sucks. But in the context of today, Cap Twin is not problematic at all. 
Captwin is pure and perfect in the context of today. And beautiful. And to go back to our kind of allusion to performance is often performed that way, much in the same way that Mercutio in Romeo and Juliet is often performed as gay. And I think tends to add a great deal to the play when performed that way. Very much agreed. And not just because I like the pairing, but I think because we have all of this exploration of gender and sexuality, it seems only reasonable that you have an actual same-sex couple in the mix. To, you know, further the subversion of gender roles. Yay! Well, that probably dovetails into another problematic fave. I mean, it's not even a fave of mine. might be a fave of other people, but Sebastian and Olivia, which we kind of talked about last time, I find problematic. Yes, primarily because that relationship gets no development at all. It just happens. I think it's worth remembering, by the way, that uh, Viola and Sebastian are separated for, what, like three months? Yes. So the relationships that they form in that time are significant relationships. You know, they've spent a lot of time with these people. As Antonio says of Sebastian, we've spent our days and nights together. Bow, chicka, wow, wow, I ship it. (laughs) But Sebastian and Olivia know each other for like a day before they get married? Less than that? I think a couple hours is generous. (sighs) It's short. And again, like, it's important also to remember that she thinks he's his sister, dressed as a boy, but she is coming on strong to a person she thinks she knows. Right, so there's more of an attachment there than there is on his part. On his part, it's just this hot, rich lady giving him presents and then asking to marry him. As you mentioned in the last episode, he's hesitant about, to his credit, he doesn't just jump at it. Conflicted, definitely. But... He still says yes. Yes. (laughs) And while I'm sure Olivia made some very compelling arguments, because it's Olivia, come on, (laughs) really? I'm looking at his soliloquy right now. Basically, he's questioning if he's crazy, if she's crazy, if he's dreaming, if he's in an alternate reality. He has no idea what to make of it. No, poor guy's out of his depth. And also, Olivia is in hilarious haste. Partly, I think, because she feels, again, she thinks this is Cesario, who has been turning her down flat every chance that he she has gotten. To Olivia's mind, when he finally starts to say yes, it's hilarious how fast she moves. This is true. Like, better get on this before he changes his mind. The minute he finishes his soliloquy, she literally drags a priest on stage and says, quick, let's go get married. Let's do the thing now. It makes Romeo and Juliet look very calm and patient and mature. Yes. (laughs) But yeah, so that's why I have a problem with that one. Obviously, it's a plot device, as we said before. Sebastian himself is a plot device, as twins often are in Shakespeare. It's kind of a bummer. It's particularly upsetting given how intense the Sebastian-Antonio relationship is, and that gets the development of two scenes. Right, and yet you believe it. If Shakespeare had wanted to expend the effort to make you believe Sebastian and Olivia, he could have. Oh, yeah. I mean, honestly, like what Comedy of Errors is probably a good example. You have more interaction among the twins with other people who are mistaking them for each other than you do in this play. It's confusing to everybody, but they do engage with each other. I mean, for the whole play, really. Yeah. Sebastian himself doesn't get that, and Sebastian Olivia doesn't get that. No. It's understandable in the sense that, you know, play's gotta move, but it's also regrettable, because this is the ending. This is supposed to be the happy ending, and you want to believe it more than you do. 
Right. And you're, you're kind of like there at the end, like, oh, yay, Viola and Orsino are together. And wait, what happened with Olivia again? I, what? There's one nod to it that Sebastian says to Olivia. So he and Viola sort out that they're, in fact, each other's siblings. Sebastian turns to Olivia and says, so comes it, lady, you have been mistook. You would have been contracted to a maid. That's pretty much the only nod given to the fact that she married a person she thought was someone else. Right. She married a stranger, the wrong person. I guess he didn't really understand that she thought he was someone else. No. Does she call him Cesario? I think she does call him Cesario. Yes, but only once. So, yeah. I guess if you thought it was a dream, you might just kind of go with it. Yeah. But again, we don't know. They don't get enough development. No, he doesn't get to think it through with anyone because obviously if he talked to Antonio about it, he'd be like, what? You just met this lady. What What are you even doing? Also, come back to my ship with me. Majorly that. That last part. I think you see this in a lot of comedies. The overly neat ending is often a little bit unsatisfying because it's forced. And we are dealing with a play, which is by its nature artificial. So to a certain point, we can accept these things. But to me, this is kind of like the tripping point for Twelfth Night. It doesn't ruin the play for me. I'm not saying that. Still enjoy it very much. It is hilarious, but it's just kind of kind of unsatisfying. That's all. Yeah, it it's one of those things that really relies on the chemistry between the actors to make you happy with it. Yeah, for sure. But I will say it's a hell of a lot better than the ending for Helena and Demetrius in Midsummer. Mm, that's the bottom of the barrel, my friend. Because as you yourself pointed out, Shakespeare does make it clear that both Sebastian and Olivia are consenting adults in their own right minds. No fairy juice involved. Of any persuasion. <laughs> yeah, not in a gross way. Come on, guys. It's Shakespeare. You're meant to be pervy. Ew, it's not pervy. We're almost done with problematic faves. I think our last one is, what did you call it, Marobi? Yes. <laughs> That's Maria and Toby, if you're not in the know. The comic relief sort of couple? Yeah, we kind of talked about this last time. I think it gets alluded um, to the fact that she has a crush on him, and he's actually well aware, I think, of her feelings for him. Yes, and exploits them and gloats about them, and generally doesn't act like someone who deserves the awesomeness that is Maria. And I think this is something that you can again, go back to the actors, and there's a way I think you can play Toby that makes that endearing and not obnoxious and gross, but obviously you can also make it obnoxious and gross really easily. Pretty much it depends on just how crapsack your director wants this world to be. <laughs> yeah. If it's more jovial and maybe there's some wink-wink like understanding that he feels the same way, then by all means, let right. them get together. I mean, side characters deserve to be happy too. But as we discussed in the last episode, there are so many better characters that Maria could hook up with. Yeah, like pretty much everyone except for Malvolio. It probably is worth noting that of, of her options, Feste is the only one who matches her in cleverness. That's true. They are equal wits. She and Toby have some excellent banter. They do. They are very funny together. But she's, you know, she's not going to be having any epic battle of wits foreplay with Fabian. No, I mean... I think, like I kind of indicated last time, at most I kind of see maybe a secret pining there because, as acknowledged, Maria is pretty great. So I can see, like, all of those drunken dudes just being like, oh, she's so funny and she's so good at pranks, but also we're all secretly very much in love with her. Yes, I buy that completely. I think she's got all of below stairs twisted around her little finger. Absolutely. So, you know, if she wants Toby, 
fine. I'm just saying, again, she could do better. This is going to be a recurring theme throughout this entire podcast. <laughs> she could do better. Hashtag she could do better. The patron saint of this is Hero. Yeah, prime example. At some point, we're going to come up with some cross-play better suitors for some of these ladies, but that'll be a treat much later on. For the moment, we will find them, or we will try to find them suitable matches within their own plays, although I would still argue that any of them would probably be fine on their own. Fair enough. All right, so that'll do it for problematic faves. Now we're going to get a little bit angrier. Not really, because it's Twelfth Night and super funny, but let's sink some ships. That's hard to say. There is only one ship in this play that I cannot stand, and... I just want to fire ballistas at it until it sinks to the bottom of the ocean. Fire off! That is the hideous one-sided horror show that is Malvolio and Olivia. Yep. That dude is gross. He is more than any other of the variously entitled men in this play, the most entitled. It's kind of funny. I was just thinking Twelfth Night doesn't really have a villain in the traditional sense. A lot of the other comedies have somebody who's a little bit nefarious. What, Sir John and Much Ado, for example? Yeah. Malvolio isn't a villain. He's just an asshole. Yeah, and I would argue that's honestly one of this play's great strengths, that it doesn't try to shoehorn in an awkward, obvious evil character. Because Dungeon is really awkward and obvious. It's annoying. There's no good good way to play him. But the fact that Malvolio is the closest that this play gets to a true villain, and that he is so petty and ultimately so ineffectual... I think serves to serves two purposes. A to point up just the idyllicness of Illyria and B to just refocus back onto the relationships that are the backbone of this play. You don't need to have a villain come in and mess things up. These characters are perfectly capable of messing their own lives up. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, in that way, I think we're talking about something that's quite modern, right? You don't need a standard villain. <laughs> Our greatest enemy is ourselves. <laughs> so I, that's very much at work in Twelfth Night, where Sino's greatest enemy is himself. Viola is perfect, so whatever. Olivia's greatest enemy is just that she doesn't know who Viola is, really. Right, well, and, and society to an extent. Uh, Sebastian's greatest enemy is clearly circumstance, poor guy. Malvolio is only a villain to the downstairs characters, and not that effective, either. No, he's really bad at it because he doesn't actually have any authority over him, which is what he's daydreaming about, by the way, when he comes across that letter that Maria's forged, supposedly written by Olivia, right? And can we just say that gets him a lot more hot and bothered than any image of Olivia? This is a guy who gets off on authority. Yeah, let's let's visit some of these lines, because they are terrible. <laughs> Pretty much everybody in this play is a decent human being at heart. He's the only bad apple, because, again, he loves being in charge. He loves the idea of his own self-importance. And unlike all the other characters, he doesn't listen to Feste, whose job it is to knock them down when they get a little too into themselves. Yeah, it's his job to deflate people. It's really Malvolio's job is to make sure the household's running. You know, he's, he doesn't really have any authority over anyone, like we've said. So this this vision that he has in the middle of the play where he's going to extend his hand to Sir Toby and, and say, because my fortunes have, well, I'll even say, my fortunes having cast on me your niece give me this prerogative of speech, so I can say this now, right? You must amend your drunkenness. Out, scab! (laughs) 
right? The interjections in this scene are the best. It's so funny, and it gets played so well in pretty much every version I've seen of it. Literally, my favorite is when he's imagining Toby bowing to him, and from behind the bush, Toby sputters, Shall this fellow live? <laughs> it's so great. Yell that at someone you don't like sometime. Be, do it. Be great. It's great. Yeah. Do the, the effect thing. is really awesome. It. But yeah, that that he's just like, you know, and you're wasting your time with Sir Andrew and y'all suck and I'm so great and look at my robes. And it's just before he even picks up this letter, we know that this man has these delusions of grandeur and really just wants to subjugate other people and apply his morality to the world. There's nothing at all appealing about him. And it's gross that he's macking on his boss in the first place. And particularly gross because he commits an amplified version version of the sin that Orsino does in his courtship of Olivia, he doesn't think about her. Oh yeah, she barely figures into this fantasy at all. I think she's, you know, supposed to be asleep while all this is happening. Yeah, he says, having come from a daybed where I have left Olivia sleeping. (sighs) And that's just a perfect storm of gross and thoughtless. That the only purpose she has in this fantasy of his is to exist off stage and unable to affect anything while he takes control of her life and the privileges it affords him. Right, and her family, I mean... Yeah, no, like, everything about her independent life is forfeit in this fantasy because he needs to be in control. I think it speaks to how he sees her, too. I mean, they don't have a lot of scenes together, but the ones that they do have together, I think notably when she's chastising Feste, he's trying to assert himself into the situation that he has no right to be in in the first place. And she kind of brushes him off, and it's great. It gets grosser once you think back and realize that even there, he's trying to impress her with his wit and his powers of speech. Right? Like, like, look, look, I can deal with the fool and... I can do the talking thing. And he's really bad at it. On top of that, I think that's the other thing about Malvolio is he's really just not that smart either. Yeah, he's not, he's not good at any of the things he thinks he's good at, which Maria mentions as the reason her trick will work. Right. She's much smarter than he is. I mean, I'm sure the handwriting was very close, but come on. The amazing thing about that scene is that, as I think, Julia, as you mentioned, he's already fantasizing about being Count Malvolio long before he sees that letter. Yeah. And I think she's drawing it from her understanding of him, right? Absolutely. No, she says, it is his grounds of faith that all that look on him love him, and on that vice in him will my revenge find notable cause to work. She's so good. She could have anyone she wanted or nobody. It's her choice. Whatever you want, Maria. We're fine with it. We're, we're talking about someone who has this inflated sense of himself. The, the letter is really just pushes him into a situation where he'll act on what he already thinks. It doesn't introduce anything into his head that he isn't already thinking about. Which is gross. It's pretty gross. And again, it's Shakespeare, so take this as pervy as it is intended. The first thing he notices when he picks up that letter, these be her very C's, her U's, and her T's, and thus she makes her great P's. I'm gonna go throw up now. Thanks, Liz. You're welcome. You're supposed to. Malvolio is disgusting, and this ship needs to die. Yes, burn it. Burn the ship. I don't think anyone really ships this that much anyway. If you do, and you have like a solid argument for it, I would be fascinated to hear it, for sure. And also, I would like to make sure that you are not, in fact, Malvolio, because he is the only person, I think, who ships it. That'd be weird. Malvolio is on... Oh my god, if Malvolio is on Twitter... 
he would never be able to restrict himself to 140 characters. He would write threads every day. Mofo would get so banned. <laughs> so bad. No, he'd just ban everyone. He'd like report everybody. Oh, that's true. Oh, this person harassed me. That person said something uncouth. Ooh. But yeah, it's a, it's a terrible ship. It's clearly just meant to be funny. I mean, it is also exploring kind of the boundaries of class mobility in in a funny way because we're supposed to find it ridiculous that a noblewoman would ever get involved with a servant. And that's actually the thing that manages to salvage some tragic dignity for him at the end because he is so overly humiliated. Like, he's been gross and obnoxious and overstepping his boundaries, but I think pretty much any audience would agree at the end of a performance that as obnoxious as he's been, he doesn't deserve the extent of his punishment. No, I mean, they lock the guy up and have a fake priest, um, played by Feste, come torment him. They make him think he's crazy. Right, which isn't a nice thing to do to anyone. It doesn't matter how odious they are. I'm thinking particularly of the Trevor Nunn movie, but I've seen stage productions too, where his I'll be revenged on the whole pack of you is unexpectedly moving. I can see it. I mean, if you if you played that, the right degree of feeling, less hysteria, which I think is often presented with. It's interesting because I think the hysterical reaction is the more funny. Yeah, no, I agree. It's just like, oh, I'll be revenged on all of you. And is is more in keeping with his previously established character than this sudden resolve. And right. It, it really depends, I think, on how much development your director decides he gets in that cell. I think that's true. And to the degree that we're talking about genuine heartbreak, because I think you can play a very shallow version of Malvolio, where he really is just interested in control over other people. Uh, you could play a version of Malvolio that's genuinely in love with Olivia. You could. You could. I think it would take a very talented actor and some really close reading. Right. But this is Shakespeare. Anything's doable. But, you know, the scenes that they do have together, he could be fawning over her quite a bit, and she could be completely oblivious. Yes. I mean, Olivia's good at that. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of her superpower. But, yeah, I mean, it would still be gross, mind you. The one thing that makes me a little uncomfortable about how much I hate this ship is that, as you mentioned, it is also a commentary on social mobility. And what Malvolio is really being punished for is not gross would-be macking on Olivia, but on his temerity to imagine he could be better than he already is. That's and true. that is very much a product of its time. For and sure. does not elicit the same belly laughs now as it did then. <laughs> No, I think you, you really have to kind of exaggerate the putting on airs to make that funny at this point, especially for American audiences, because we just don't care about that kind of thing at all. I mean, it can be done, again. Absolutely. And in many respects, this is a very modern play, but in, in some others, it's not. I mean, there's a pirate. Like, come on, you guys. Pirates are awesome no matter when you live, though. But that's that's the only ship that, that I can that I want to sink in this play. Pretty much everything else I'm fine with. And it's funny because we're set up to want to sink it, which is not going to be a case for, I think, a lot of the other ships that we talk about. But Shakespeare wants us to sink this ship. So in a way, we're totally playing into his hands. Yes. No, we're we're being set up and we're falling for it. But I'm also fine with that because I love Twelfth Night. Yes. And we're going to crap on his preferred ships in many other plays. So I oh, think yeah. it's probably fair. I'm going to sink some of Shakespeare's ships. It's going to be like all cannons or Oof. however you make that order. Yeah. Fire all. Yeah, for sure. Broadside. Hey, bayonets. Yeah, come about. I don't even know. Whatever. Dude, guys, if you know more nautical terms than we do, like, please 
help us out. This is humiliating for me because I've read all of the Hornblower books and I can't think of it. See, I haven't, so I feel no shame. (laughs) Well, you should. What are you doing with your life? This? Fair. Oh, that's actually something I was going to say when we were talking about villains before. If you were going to look for a traditional villain in the story, it would probably be Antonio. And it's not. In fact, he's one of the best people in this play. (laughs) He's the purest. He's such a sweetheart. I guess there's a way you could play him as sinister. I just don't see it. I mean, I don't think you could play him as sinister and still be true to the character. I guess this kind of desperation could potentially be uncomfortable, especially if it seemed clear that Sebastian just didn't reciprocate. Yes. No, I can certainly see him being too intense for Sebastian and too in love with Sebastian. So that's a route you could take. It would be a very sad one and not that funny. But it's not a villainous route. You're right. No, I mean, he, I mean, he's Orsino's, like, most apparent enemy, other than his terrible poetry, which is his first enemy. <laughs> but yeah, they don't, they don't play that at all. I mean, it kind of gets waved away at the end. He's like, oh, I wasn't really a pirate. No. I'm a legitimate sea captain. I'm a privateer. <laughs> I have my license and everything. Toad's a pirate, but lucky for him, Orsino is so distracted by what's happening with Viola that it does not matter. Um, um, can you change into your woman's weeds a little more slowly, please? Where that pirate guy go? I don't care. Let's just, let's go. Sebastian, you go find the pirate guy, do your thing. (laughs) You're in charge of him now. Deal out whatever punishment you see fit. Or, you know, whatever he likes. Our last segment of Twelfth Night and this week is our hate sex couple of the month. Coriolanus and Ophidius! Not in this playlist. They're always my hate sex couple of the month. They have the best hate sex in Shakespeare, but they're not in Twelfth Night. I know, it's sad. They should be in every play, so they can always be hate sex couple of the month. We're not even doing that one this year, are we? No. So you're going to say that every time. Get used to it. (sighs) There will be better hate sex couples. There aren't really that many good ones in Twelfth Night. Yeah, the only one that I can think of is Malvolio Toby, which is gross, but they're the only ones I can think of who actually have interesting hate sex okay so i'm gonna say not at the end of the play but if they encountered each other before that you could totally make an argument for orsino and antonio (gasps) oh you're right because they're enemies sort of oh man (gasps) that'd be way hotter hate sex than toby and malfolio yes it would oh bless and that would give orsino a way to work through some of his issues Right. I mean, this would be like a very like alt timeline situation. Yes. It would have to be. But if there was a, a like a pocket of time before the big reveal at the end where Antonio and Orsino did meet. Or maybe even before the play begins. That's true. Before Viola even shows up. Before the shipwreck. Because the officer who brings him in front of Orsino mentions two encounters. Taking the phoenix and her freight from Candy, which is another word for Crete, according to my footnotes. And when he boarded the tiger when Orsino's young nephew Titus lost his leg. Poor Titus. Poor Titus. Poor one out for Titus. Titus's don't fare well in Shakespeare. Shockingly. But yeah, like on either one of those occasions, like that would be amazingly hot. Yeah, absolutely. Because also pirate sex. Always the best, as Sebastian knows. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I I was also going to say, to me, it's fairly apparent that Antonio is not just gay for Sebastian. Although he's very gay for Sebastian. Yeah. He's not just Sebastian. I mean, he doesn't have anything resembling the hangups that Orsino does. He uses much more heartfelt language. Yeah, he's completely comfortable with it. That's a really interesting point, actually. He just expresses himself more freely than I think anyone in the play does, except for Viola. Yeah. And maybe Olivia when she's talking to Cesario. 
I would argue even more than Viola because he doesn't have the constraint of masquerading as a different gender. Man, is it Antonio the most unconstrained character in the play? And it has to be because he's outside of all of these cultural norms that we've been talking about. Yes. He is the purest. Oh, I love him. His love is the purest of all. How many lines does he have and we're just obsessed with this character? God, I don't know. Not I'm enough. I'm just going to call these episodes just like we love Antonio. <laughs> and so does Sebastian. Yes. Yes, he does. I'm just imagining, like, Sebastian trying to bring him in for a threesome with Olivia and him just being like, I don't know what to do with those bits. With, with ladies? Okay. Well, she's very commanding, so I respond to that. That's fine. But this, mm. I do always get the sense that Antonio was the top, though. Oh, yes. Without, <gasps> without a doubt. See, now I'm just imagining Antonio is the top with Orsino. Oh, no wonder Orsino is just compensating so hard. He's trying so much. He's trying so much to be straight. Oh, poor queer babies. Just can't do it. Yeah, okay. This is a new headcanon of mine. At one point, even if nothing happened, it was just this like moment of like sexual recognition. There was a thing. Yeah. He had some feelings. There was some tingly pants action. That's what I'm saying. All right. I'm adding to this headcanon because I'm going to say that that happened directly prior to the beginning of Orsino's fervent courtship of Olivia. What? I love it. He has this awakening and then flees back into the Petrarchan social structure and tries so hard to make that work. And then, wouldn't you know it, the person who comes and busts him out of it for good is this pretty cross-dressing girl boy. Yeah, as would have to happen. Mm -hmm. You're right, because it does all feel extremely vague and forced. And I always thought that was just because he had this idealized version of Olivia in his head. But really... No, it's because he knows he's queer and doesn't want to deal with it. Yes! Oh, we figured it out, Liz. We solved Orsino. Mostly. Enough. Oh, you, I mean, really, like, you could play that last scene so, mm. so great, too, right? That moment when he's like, oh, here he is. Oh, excuse me, I just had a feeling. <laughs> <laughs> this man must be stopped. He makes me feel things. <sighs> I love it. Okay. Oh, my God. Well, that hate sex went way better than I thought it was going to. I know. Oh, thank you. You're a genius. Oh. Thank you very much. <laughs> By the way, guys, we do this so that we do not have to write fanfic for every Shakespeare play. But if you want to and you want to send it to us, we'd love that. Absolutely. Unless it's Malvolio and Olivia. Yeah. No, then we don't want to read it. We want to hear your arguments, but we don't want to read the fic. Especially if it's explicit. <clears throat> <clears throat> Sorry. <laughs> Had a moment. I'm fine. <laughs> are you, though? No. Neither of us are. I'm just going to think about sweet pirate sex with Orsino, and I'll I'll heal. It just adds a whole new dimension also to the, the Great Illyrian foursome plus Antonio. It does. It really... And isn't this what fandom is all about? Oh <laughs> These God. mental gymnastics we get to do to make ourselves happy? Seriously. Not that, again, you don't have to do that much with Twelfth Night. It's already pretty gay. Yeah. Everyone ships everyone. Yeah. And already pretty fun. So we hope you enjoyed this episode of Shipping Shakespeare. We hope you go back and read and or watch Twelfth Night and absolutely let us know your thoughts on these headcanons and these pairings and whether you think Malvolio and Olivia should be a thing or why you really like Viola and Orsino. Like, whatever you want to tell us, please do. The next episode we do is taking on Hamlet and we will have thoughts. So many thoughts. Are you excited? I'm excited. Oh my god, yes. And also kind of angry in advance. I mean, Hamlet makes me angry. I love him, but 
he makes me angry. Yeah, there's gonna be there's gonna be some fury in this one. This one is pretty low key. It's hard to get angry at Twelfth Night. It's just perfect. No, because it's just like fun and cross dressing and pirates and jokes and alcohol. Like what's not to love? All right, that'll about wrap things up. We hope you enjoyed, and we'll see you next time. This show is produced by us, Julia and Liz, as part of the Adjective Sphinx Network. The music we use is Almain One by John Bull and can be found at museopen.com. You can find links for more info in the show notes. Find us and our sibling shows on Twitter at Adjective Sphinx or email us at adjectivesphinx at gmail.com. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please rate it on iTunes and leave a review. Thanks for listening.